I wonder if you could just open your Bible, please, for me. We're going to go to a few places tonight. And I want to open up the subject and maybe speak a little bit into an area that I think and I see, I suppose, is probably one of the major dynamics and aspects of what it is for us to be a Christian. You know, God has come into our world and into our hearts and lives not to make us servants or slaves to a cause, but actually to overwhelm us with a new reality that he's a God who delights in us, a God who loves us, and a God who is given to us everything possible so we can have relationship with him. And um, as for me, that really is what Christianity looks like. Um, it's not some of the other things over time I somehow have thought it is. Everything about what Jesus has opened for us, the Bible calls it a new and living way, is about relationship. He said over and over again, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Packaged in Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection is the evidence of a God who is not angry with humanity, but absolutely passionate to engage. Aren't you grateful for that? And we are the benefactors of that engagement. Is there anyone here tonight who's discovered or been discovered by God in the season of your life and you have indeed found that he is far more and far more incredible than you ever thought you could ever imagine he is? Is God like that for you? So, so for me, Christianity is it's a, a, a journey, it's a, an adventure, it's a romance, it's this incredible invitation to lean into the person of God and to discover who he truly is. And I have found that he is just breathtaking. And in the transaction of me pursuing him, what really is important to highlight is that all the time he has always been pursuing me. And I have a quick question for you before we start a little journey tonight. Did Jesus come to fix you or did he really come to find you? Personally, I feel the second is true. And in the finding of us and the rediscovering of who we truly are before all the damage took place and all of the labels were put on our hearts and lives and the circumstances began to shape us, God begins to call out of us our original design, begins to call out of us and to us out of a place of love. And that adventure is really what, from my perspective, and I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but that is what Christianity is all about. So you know at the beginning of mankind, it's always good to kind of look at beginnings in, in the, the scriptures. We know that God, out of the abundance of the fellowship of the Trinity, wanted to share that intimacy and extend the boundaries of the possibilities of that intimacy. So he forms out of dust the man. And I don't know if you ever stop to think about that. That's quite a feat in and of itself. Have you ever tried to form anything out of dust? It's, it's quite a feat in and of itself. Just that little sentence for me just causes my creative mind to go off in all kinds of tangents. And, you know, when he formed Adam, the Bible teaches us that he breathed. I think the word that's used there is the word ruach. He breathed his breath into Adam's body. And 
man, as we now know humankind, opened his eyes and the first thing he saw was the face of God. We were created out of intimacy, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we were created for intimacy. And um, it's hard to believe, and it's probably slightly theologically off, but I love the phrase anyway, it all started with a kiss. Isn't that good to think? That God breathed his nature, his character, his fullness, his blessing, and his life into human form. And how far we've come from that. How, how different it has become for many people. Um, and that's a problem that I think is historical. And there's a reason for that. So if you have a, a Bible with you, please, would you go to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll start by identifying some of the reasons why we're living in a lesser reality than the one that God intended for us. You know that from the moment that Adam was created, the Bible teaches us in Genesis 1 and 2 that Adam lived in sweet fellowship and friendship with God. And um, reading between the lines there, it would look to me like he had no idea that he was inferior to his creator. They talked and walked together in the cool of the day. Adam wasn't aware that he lacked anything because he was living in fullness of relationship. He was living in his truest identity and his most glorious reality. And that is simply that he was the beloved of God. And so there was no room for self-analysis or uh, doubt or concern or intellectual kind of you know, recognition that he was highly inferior to God. Intimacy had birthed in Adam the most glorious reality. And that reality was he was God's friend, birthed out of relationship for relationship. And he was at the epicenter of all the affections of God and his desires and his delights for humankind. And then we know that Adam was distracted and I think tricked into believing that there were some things that God was withholding from him and consequently he listened to another voice and that voice led him and Eve astray. So it started with a kiss, but it went horribly wrong. And it went wrong because sometimes I think in our own nature and in our own capacity, we question some of the things that God doesn't give to us instantly. And, and out of that lack of trust, Adam fractured a relationship. And when we get to Genesis chapter 3, which we're going to read in a minute, verse 10, it says this. Adam is asked by God where he is. And I just want to suggest to you that's not a geographical question because God could see and does see and know all things. So God wasn't coming out of a sense of, you know, nervous anxiety. I've missed you, Adam, where are you? He knew fully geographically where Adam was, but Adam needed to come to a place of awareness where the relationship with God that was beautiful and spectacular and full of life had somehow now been changed. And so he comes to him in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Maybe you could read it with me. And um, God asked the question, where are you, Adam? And Adam says, I heard you coming in the garden I was afraid, and so I hid myself. Now, you'll have some version of that. Now, here's something that's interesting. When we live outside of the parameters of being the beloved, 
such is our vulnerability that we have to adopt some postures to protect us from the general experience of life. So Adam had an intimate relationship, let's say it started with a kiss. The Ruach and the breath of God, which was the expression of the glorious unity and fellowship and beauty of the Trinity, is poured into him physically and he awakens and he sees God in the most beautiful, intimate, tender way that I think perhaps is worth considering. That intimacy grew into a great friendship and he lived with great delight and passion and a real connectivity with God without fear, without shame, without anxiety, without all the things that sometimes play itself out in our relationship with God. And then he stepped out of that covenant relationship with the Lord and began to question what the relationship looked like. And he identifies three things that are, I believe, a byproduct of being separated from our beloved state. The first thing he says, I heard you coming in the garden and I was afraid. Now, fear is something I think that we, we often declare in meetings like this that God is going to break fear. And there is an element and an aspect to God coming in and intervening in certain things. But I've, I've discovered that free, freedom really doesn't come just from declaration. It comes from application. Okay, I, I can sing all the songs I want about not being afraid. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I can say all these wonderful things. And actually, when I leave this, this room <laughs> and go back into my real life, um, I can be confronted with that. There's something about free, fear that has to be confronted. It, I don't even think it, you can be counseled through fear. And here's what God chooses to confront it with. And we come to this in the New Testament. It says that perfect love drives out all fear. So what is perfect love? It's us coming back to that place of being the beloved in relationship with God again. So when man got separated from God, having enjoyed this beloved state, fear entered into our lives. It entered into our our physicality. It entered into our emotional state. And um, fear is always about consequence. It's always about what could be. It's always about what should be. And before we know where we are, if we think this through too much, we'll start to recognize we probably have aspects of this in our lives. And I actually think that most people do. He said also, I was naked. So we have another thing that's a byproduct of separation, because up until this point, Adam had no awareness of his naked state. And, you know, just prior to this, you know, he, he started to try and cover up his nakedness. Now, if I was to press that a little bit too far, um, it could be an error. But actually, the, the basic tenet here is that Adam discovered that outside of his beloved state of relationship with God, there were some aspects to his humanity that actually were problematic. So he had never known what it was like to be separated from God relationally and suddenly there are dynamics to that relationship that have shifted and they've changed. Fear has come into his relationship. He heard God coming in the garden. He'd never been frightened of God and suddenly he's afraid, okay, because of the consequences of what had happened. He had never been aware that he was naked or indeed vulnerable in that way and so his shame uh, starts to become very evident and there's this two-pronged thing that happens now as a result of stepping outside of the covenant of belovedness and we recognize that Adam for the first time in his life is feeling what we all feel in this room and that is shame. So let me explain what shame is. Shame isn't that I've done something wrong, that's being shamed or even doing something shameful. Shame is there's something wrong with me. 
that somehow, in some way, in spite of all of my activity and all of my productivity, when I close the door at night and I'm left in the silence of my own thoughts, I'm often persuaded that there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and I've had quite a few people over the years who've echoed that back to me. You know, if I haven't performed the way somebody actually wanted me to or demanded that I should or could, then usually that's the response that touches that part of my soul. And it's not an easy thing to grapple with, but we all, if we're honest here, have aspects and dynamics of fear in our lives. And we definitely have aspects and dynamics of feeling that there's something wrong with us. You know, for years I'd be in church and people would say things like this over my life. You know, Simon, God's told me to tell you that you're wonderfully and fearfully made. And I had no idea what that meant. You know, I'm still kind of grappling with that. I mean, that's wonderful, isn't it? It's a nice thought, but I'm the kind of person, I don't want pie in the sky. I want meat on my plate. So how, how do I download that then? How do I access what it means to live in the fullness of being wonderfully and fearfully made. And actually, that's the beloved state in relationship with God. We never quite access what it is to be wonderfully and fearfully made until we are restored as well as we can be here this side of heaven to our beloved connectivity with the God who delights in us. So they would say things like this, you know, God has knitted you together in your mother's womb. And I would smile politely because I'm, you know, a polite person, but I'd I often used to think, if I'm honest, but I think with me, he dropped a stitch. Because as, as much as I try, as intentional as I become, and I can be quite disciplined in certain areas of my life, I arrive back at the same conclusion that there's something not quite right with me. There's something missing. And you know, actually, that's true. Because it's not a something that's missing, it's a someone that's missing. See, if you don't have Jesus in your life, if you're not living in the reality of the belovedness of God, you will always be conscious of fear. Because fear is about consequences for actions and responses to the life that's around you, and particularly relationship to God. Whether you're conscious of God or not, you will have an awareness of that. And people use these phrases, they call it karma. What goes around comes around. Be careful what you sow because you'll reap it too. So if we're not kind to somebody, we think there's a consequence. So we have an awareness, we have a conscious state that makes us consistently fearful. And we're also fearful that people might find out that we're hopelessly flawed. You know, because it's easy in here to put our hands in the air and sing all the wonderful songs, isn't it? I, I do love our gatherings and, I, and I'm really excited by what the Lord is just beginning to cultivate for us. And this is just the appetizer. So my, my appetite's awakened. I want to see more of what God is doing. But actually, if you're really honest, you know, you make promises you don't keep. You, you, <laughs> you make declarations you walk away from and nothing really changes. And, and you know, when I first began it, to come to churches and, and be around with people. People would say to me, you know, I'm not coming to the church. It's full of hypocrites. And I used to say, well, there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more. And, and here's how we're all partially hypocritical. Because we say and declare and pronounce some things that actually we're not always living. 
Is that true? So in some senses, we have a theology that isn't a reality. And, and so when man got separated from his beloved state, where he had no conscious awareness of these dynamics to his reality, and sin entered into humanity, that separateness from God and his beloved and de delight in humanity uh, actually created some problems for us. And we have, we have fear and we have shame. And then we do what Adam did in his now new dynamic of interacting with God. We try and control how it happens. So repeat this after me. Shame. What is shame? It's not that I've done something wrong. It's that kind of gnawing and nagging, I call it the committee, that says there's something wrong with me. Does anybody identify with that? Come on, talk to me. I can go home and be ignored. Okay. So have shame. We have fear. Fear comes out of that reality that there's consequences to the truth of who we are. Okay, and we don't want anyone to find out who we truly were or are because if people really knew what we were like, they probably wouldn't hang out with us. No, yeah? Or are you just perfect? Are you perfect in all of your ways? I don't think so. So if there's fear, sorry, if there's shame, there is going to be fear. And they kind of come together as a package. They come together as a package. If there's shame, there's something wrong with me. I never quite reached my full potential. I'm not really who I think I should be. I'm not, you know, this, I'm flawed in my humanity. I'm broken. You will find that fear will be a very dominant reality for you. And because you are fearful, you will control all kinds of things. And so what we discover here is that Adam, now for the first time, having been exposed to the true state of his soul actually tries to orchestrate how he relates to God. Now remember, just a chapter before, none of that was an issue because he was living in his beloved reality. He was living in the fullness of what it means to be in relationship with God without all of those dynamics playing themselves out. He was unaware that he was inferior in any way to God. And so consequently, the shame-fear-control cycle, and it is a cycle because let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you have shame, you will definitely have fear. If you have fear, you will need to control. If you need to control, you'll have more shame. If you have more shame, you will have more fear. And so at this moment, we find that God's intention for relationship with man and his plan to have glorious beloved fellowship where God would pour his reality into Adam and Adam would pour his reality into relationship with God was fractured. And instead of that, and what replaced that for, for human beings is a shame, fear, control cycle that for many of us has become the, the way we operate in the world in which we live. So, so one of the interesting things for me about what happens when God begins to move by his spirit, and I just want to let you know that I'm not trying to make too much of it. In fact, I think I've made too little of it. But there is something fresh happening amongst us. There is something fresh happening amongst us. Three of us are in agreement. But it only takes two or more, so we're already in a majority. So three of us are in agreement. And, and what happens when God begins to move is that this part of our nature begins to come to the surface. 
We start to be more conscious of some things. So you, you'll probably find that when you gather in moments like this, that your shame will become evident. Okay, because you realize that in the midst of his holiness and his purity and his glory, you have a conscious reality that you're not quite what you could or should be. And the higher or the deeper or the wider or the more profound the presence of God becomes, we start to have a conscious awareness that we are not all that we should be. And so repentance is a really good way out of that. I recommend it to everybody. See, repentance is admitting that something's wrong. Do you remember that, 1974? Admitting <laughs> that something's wrong. Because, I mean, some of us would die rather than be wrong, wouldn't we? Hello? Yeah, we would die. I mean, we, we, would, we would leave the church rather than be wrong. We would, we would break up with people rather than be wrong. See, I always say to people I'm trying to help, it doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. What matters is that you both do what's right. If you both do what's right, then none of us are wrong, even if you're wrong. <laughs> but if we're not going to be honest and real before God regarding some of that stuff when the Holy Spirit begins to move, what will happen is we will resist what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. And he doesn't come to expose us in the sense that he's coming to reveal our sin. Because let me, let me explain to you, he already knows what you're like. Hello? He really, and you know the remarkable thing is, before you even entered into relationship with him, he knew what you would be like. And he still came. Doesn't that kind of warm you a little bit? Is anybody awake here tonight? Doesn't that warm you a little bit? So, so it's not that he moves amongst us to expose our sin. What's happening is when we're exposed to him, we start to become conscious of some parts of our nature and our character. And shame will always be a, an issue when God begins to move. But repentance is simply admitting, God, I think there are some areas of my life. Search me and try me, O oh God. If you find any wicked way within me, Father, then come and bring healing and restoration and restore me. And, and you know, that, that's part of the cycle of... And the more that we get cleansed from those shame-based realities, the more freedom we give the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and lives. Because we realize that the exposure isn't my sin, the exposure is his purity. That's really what's being offered in those moments. And, and I think repentance is very good for the soul. It does two things. It keeps us conscious of the goodness of God. And it keeps us connected to that goodness. Because if I'm unrepentant, I'm, I'm outside of the beloved state that is now afforded to me in Christ Jesus. Hello? So I don't want to be outside of it. I mean, I've gone through an awful lot to get in on it, so I'm not going to be outside of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. And when the Holy Spirit begins to move, fear is often very real and tangible um, in those gatherings. And, um, and here's, here's one of the things that I'll just say before it happens, and I think we'll see it, is I have come to the persuasion that God is not necessarily going to do this the way you want it to happen. <laughs> Sorry. Um, because if he did it the way you want it to happen, then only you could access it. 
So whatever move of the Holy Spirit we're stepping towards and cult, seeing God cultivate, actually you will have moments where you're going to feel a little frightened. And that's understandable because you are growing in relationship with the most awesome, incredible being known to you as God. There should be a little... As much as he is the God of love, he is holy and righteous and pure and just. And so when we come into a place where the Spirit begins to move, our shame will start to rise and our fear will quickly follow suit. And, and our fear is because we are now in this dangerous place of having some moments of clarity and revelation about the reality of God. Woe to me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. What can save me? Well, what can save you is Jesus. That's who can save you. And he will bring you back into that place of belovedness. Amen? Um, <clears throat> I've watched people who have shame and fear as, as, a, as a kind of soul-based interaction with God. And I do think we all have elements of that. I'm not trying to highlight anyone in particular or any particular personality type, but here's what happens when the Holy Spirit moves. We try and control him. Because our functionality has to be all about our own personal safety. Okay, and I've noticed that the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to have a huge amount of sensitivity <laughs> because he knows you better than you know yourself. Okay, so, so sometimes he will choose to move in a very passionate and seemingly from the outside violent way on somebody's life. Uh, I've been in meetings where people have shaken furiously under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, I was grateful because I wanted to shake those people anyway. And whenever I saw God shaking them, I thought, thank you, Jesus. You just, you read my mind. You know, you read my mind, God. But you know, here's the interesting thing for me. We all, want God, we all want God to do something new and we all want God to do something fresh, but we'd like it packaged and delivered in old manifestations we've experienced in the past. We, we like yesterday's manner, you know, which of course has now impoverished and is no longer as powerful and as real as it was to us or satisfying as it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. And every fresh move of the Holy Spirit always has people who object to it because they have memory. They have, you know, it's like one of those mattresses where you lie on, it's called memory foam. You have, you've lain in this place for so long, you, you, your body shape is, you know, evident. And so, so should God decide to move you somewhere, you know, well, actually, it just doesn't feel comfortable. Well, that's the whole idea, because it's new, Okay. Something new is usually not comfortable. It's a clue. It's just a clue for us. It's usually not comfortable. And we're praying for something new. We want God to pour out his spirit in, in beautiful and glorious new ways. And so for me, the, the shame, fear, control state of our souls and lives is as a result of us coming outside of the beloved reality of living in connectivity with God. <clears throat> so go to Matthew chapter 3 for me. Is this okay? Are you still with me? Is that okay? Matthew chapter 3 verse 17. 
we, we see the Father, the Spirit and the Son all together in the same place at one moment in time. And um, it's Jesus' baptism and he's getting baptised in the River Jordan. And <clears throat> there's, there's this wonderful sense of, of the, the Spirit's presence that's represented to us and demonstrated by um, the flight of a dove. There's Jesus present, who incidentally didn't need to be baptised because baptism is about repentance of sin and Jesus hadn't sinned and didn't sin. So what he's doing is offering us a reflection of what it looks like to be fully obedient to the Father's will. And I think there are a lot of good things that come out of being fully obedient to the Father's will. Don't you? Okay. And then we hear the Father speak. And the Father speaks over this moment. And it says in the ASV version, and you may have NIV or, you know, the thus and thou version of the Bible, the old King James or the new King James. It says, and a voice came out of the heavens saying, and look what it says. This is my beloved son. One version says, in him I am well pleased. Another version says, in whom I am well pleased. And right here, what we're seeing happening is God's invitation through Jesus for us to be reconnected to the reality of being the beloved. Jesus has come into our world. He has stepped into our brokenness. He's come to annihilate our shame. He's come to eradicate through his perfect love our fear. And he's come to bring us back without a need to control everything. That's why we have to submit to him. To his, this wonderful, glorious state of being the beloved of God. And you'll notice here that that beloved state, and Jesus was perfectly God and perfectly man, is not related to any productivity or activity that the Son has demonstrated thus far. He is, he is a demonstration to us of how being reconnected to our beloved reality is possible through the grace and the mercy of God. And the reason I need to highlight that is because sometimes I think we're not necessarily that sharp with this truth in the sense that we try and do something to become the beloved. We try and make something happen. Now, I love it that Jesus, having well, he preached in the temple at 12, but having not really fully moved into the fullness of his ministry, there are no signs and wonders or testimonies of healings and miraculous you know, encounters, stands in a moment of submission to God, which might be a good thing if you want to become the beloved. Okay? And he steps into this wonderful moment before all mankind and fundamentally, that is the truth because we're reading it and experiencing it all these thousands of years later. Um, and God speaks his favor and his delight over his son. And, and before we go down the rabbit warren of thinking, well, of course God would say that over Jesus. He was perfect. The reality is that Jesus is reflecting to us and God is communicating to us in a moment where Jesus is submitted, although he's fully God, he's submitted to the will of the Father, God is communicating our truest identity. He's saying, you are my beloved sons. 
on whom my favor rests. Well, I don't know about you, but I felt that was good news. <laughs> so Jesus takes us full circle back to the place of connectivity, back to a clarity and back to our beloved reality that when we're reunited with God through faith in what Christ has done, we start to come into this glorious invitation of becoming the beloved of God. And being the beloved of God and becoming the beloved of God, and they're slightly different things, okay, are what I'm going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. So becoming the beloved of God is coming out of shame. There is no room in your beloved state to carry any flaw mindset that keeps you at a distance from God. Scriptures tell us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, and it does say to us, doesn't it, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. In other words, there's provision made for our seeming inadequacies. For all have fallen short of the glories of God, which is in our interaction, our beloved relationship with the one who created us. So when you put your trust in Jesus, you now have access to becoming the beloved of God. It's not based on what you do, clearly. It's based on who you are. Is there anybody here who's a child of God? Okay, so it's one thing to have a kind of theological truth there. It's a whole other thing to have that as a reality. If being reinstated and restored to being the beloved doesn't affect the way you see yourself and the way you see others, then you haven't really got the revelation. You may have a theological truth that you're trying to work through, that's great, but you need more than a theological truth because the invitation isn't to some contractual thing between you and God. The invitation is to come home fully to the place of being the beloved of God. These are my sons and daughters, whom I love, in them I am well pleased. So true spirituality is about the unveiling of that truth. And, and everything about the Holy Spirit is about bringing us into the fullness of that reality. God wants us to live in the fullness of being beloved. And in fact, if you were to kind of do a straw poll around the world, you'd find that in every human heart, somehow, somewhere, under all of the carnage and all of the damage that's taken place, there's a longing and a passion for us to be truly loved in a perfect way. Everybody, I believe, is searching for the right thing. We kind of know that that's there somewhere, and we maybe try and find it in people or relationships here on the earth or even success or reputation or any of those things, but all of those things will never, ever satisfy what God has placed in your DNA, and that is to come home fully to the reality of being the beloved of God, where perfect love saturates who you truly are, where you are the safest and in the most dangerous relationship that could ever possibly exist while you're here on the earth, where all of that kind of shame and fear and the need to control everything just subsides because you are living in the blessing of a love relationship with God that is so profound, it doesn't matter what anybody really thinks. 
You step outside of the parameters of giving too much credence to other people's opinions and we step back into our truest identity that we are the beloved of God and we live in that. In fact, I think there are a couple of things that happen around this. I think Jesus is consistently praying and interceding for that to become your reality. I think he prays night and day that you would have the fullness of connectivity and and experience of the beloved state that you're invited to. And I think the Holy Spirit is your greatest cheerleader. And I think every time you back away from that kind of vulnerability, um, I think you'll find the Holy Spirit keeps saying, go on, I think you can do it. And the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is he knows all the access points. Because he's kind of, he's, he's really, really clever. <laughs> and he takes everything that's available to us in God and he makes it accessible to us. And he takes our lives and he introduces us to everything that's available in God. And we come to that wonderful place of, I think the, the old hymn writer would have probably used this term. It is well with my soul. It is well. So, does that, <laughs> now that we've wrecked a beautiful hymn, let's move past that. <laughs> um, I can tangibly feel in the atmosphere here that this is a now moment for some of us. And, and I can sense the Holy Spirit just kind of encouraging me and cheerleading me to keep going um, not that I'll keep you here forever. I have no plan to do that. Um, but what we've been experiencing this week and that fresh move of God that, that is the size of a man's hand and seems if you're not conscious, aware, aware of how God begins to move and everything happens small in the kingdom and grows to such a phenomenal state is an invitation. And that invitation will require of us to fully explore who we are in relationship with God and who God is to us in relationship. And it's not enough for us to want Holy Spirit power because we can't sustain that kind of seeking. What we need is revelation. We need God to open up our lives. We need to be honest enough to say we might need them opened up and we need God to open up our lives so we can come home. We can come back to our truest identity. And then you'll find that what happens in the, in, in the realms of the Holy Spirit is that you won't have, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's the Holy Spirit who out of your beloved state brings all kinds of revelations and invitations from God to move us forward into all that God has for us. And that would be a great place to say an amen. So let me take you somewhere else. I'm going to jiggle around for a little bit here and then I'm going to land the plane. Zephaniah chapter 3. Go there for me. Verse 17. And what we have is an Old Testament version of what we all delight in, which is a New Testament truth. John 3 verse 10 tells us, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not come into the world to expose your shame, fear, control. Okay? He came to bring you home to the reality of your beloved truth. And that truth is that you are the apple of the Father's eye. So in Zephaniah 3 verse 17, we have an Old Testament invitation that's similar to that New Testament invitation. And in my version says, The Lord your God in the midst of thee is mighty to save. He rejoices over you with singing. He quiets you with his love. You will have something along those lines. And what's been painted for us is a picture of our beloved invitation from God. So let me go over this quickly if I can. The Lord your God who is far from you. Does it say that? Okay, where, where is God in this particular context? In the midst of you. The Lord your God who is with you. Now don't we all long for that kind of assurance and security that God is with us? And shame, fear, and control will somehow make it feel like he's not. And if he was, if we did ever get the sense that he was with us, we're ducking and diving and hiding and masquerading and not really enjoying his company. Hello? So God is with us. It's personal. In fact, let me take it further. God's with you which makes it really personal. And um, <clears throat> whatever we think our beloved state would look like, it would be a very personal thing that God would shape for us according to how he perceives our ability to connect with him in that reality. So for me, one size doesn't fit all in the kingdom of God. Yes, there is one salvation, one Lord, one Christ, one Savior, one cross. All of that's true. But actually, how God chooses to interact with you and to bring you home to your beloved state will actually be very bespoke. There are people here that have come into relationship with God because you were desiring to escape eternal separation and the consequences of your sin. And you know, that may not be how I started my engagement with God as the beloved. In fact, it isn't. There are others who say, I just got a revelation of the reality of my sinful state and therefore I need a saviour. And that's true. You know, I think sometimes we're preaching the gospel and we don't highlight because we're very sensitive to things currently that people are sinners. But if you're not a sinner, then you don't need a saviour. And sometimes I think we're talking about a saviour and we haven't even helped you understand you're a sinner. <laughs> so so I, I, it, it doesn't matter how that invitation came. What matters is it came and that God by his spirit's power began to woo you to a place where he wanted to reconnect you to a beloved reality. And it's personal. And um, the difficulty that I find sometimes in organised religion... <laughs> And for us as Pentecostals, we're slightly unorganized in our religion. But there's an organization in our unorganized state. 
that makes sense, is that we try and shoehorn everybody's spiritual experience down a particular pathway. And what happens is we try and recreate what we believe spirituality truly looks like. And the diversity and the majesty of God and the vast spectrum of his nature and his character somehow gets shoehorned and we all come out the other end saying the same thing, sounding the same, looking the same and doing the same thing. And, and then we're saying, God, we're bored. So he, he spoke to you personally. He is your personal saviour. There's a personal invitation and he has a personal way in which he is going to invite you back to the reality that you're his beloved. He will speak to you in ways he doesn't speak to me. You will have nuances to your relationship with him that I don't have and vice versa. So we must stop trying to make everybody sound the same, look the same. That's uniformity. That's not unity. Okay, and we must be really, really careful that we don't try and trade our originality for some kind of parody of what this should look like. Because if God died for you, it's you he's after. Now, you may not feel good about that and you may want to be her or him, but he's not going to communicate to you when you're pretending to be her or pretending to be him because he knows he knows how to touch your heart he knows how to open you up to the fullness of who God is for you and I think sometimes in organized religion we kind of get a little bit distracted by the procedures of of change and the process of change personally gets squeezed out so for me I love this phrase you, you forgive me as you get to know me it'll become something of a of a a soundbite. I think we should always pastor people prophetically. And what I mean by that is when we're interacting with people who are just fresh in relationship with God, we're looking beyond the chaos and beyond the carnage and the baggage to who God has created them to be. And we're helping them rediscover their original design in relationship to their beloved reality and we bring them on this adventure and it may look slightly different than some other people and here's one of the things I've noticed some really beautiful creative and prophetic people don't hang around in the church they end up in the music industry or in the arts performing because this environment doesn't always supply or offer the freedom for curiosity we're sometimes if we're not careful telling people what they need to believe as opposed to entering into a conversation about what they are being shown by the God who has created them and now reinvited them back to relationship with him. See, I knew that wouldn't go down so well. But I just want you to think about those things. Those things are important. So it's personal. Jesus spoke to you personally He's come into your life in a very personal way. It's, it's a very unique and glorious and beautiful thing that you are now waking up to your beloved reality with God. And everything that Adam lost through an act of mistrust is given back to us through an act of trust 
in the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ. And we can come into that fullness and into that security and into that blessed state in relationship with God. And every single day of your life, that's what the Holy Spirit is up to. And every single day of your life, that's what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for you to become fully alive to your beloved reality. Amen? The second thing is, is the Lord your God in the midst of thee is mighty to save. We know that he's, this is powerful. What God is seeking to restore is a powerful connection. And um, it's powerful because he's present, but it's powerful because it impacts the way we think and it impacts the way we live in relationship with God. And, and if, you know, if I could just say something, and I have to be careful, I'm new here, I don't want to say things that perhaps are not, not the climate of the house, but, but actually, I don't know how people can get saved and it not impact their life. For me, for me, that doesn't seem to make sense, either experientially or theologically. Um, and I do wish that we would stop fighting with ownership of our lives, because actually you, you prolong the fruitful blessing of being the beloved when you're always fighting and striving against God's will and purpose for your life. And I wish we'd lift our heads a little bit above some things that we keep blaming. And actually the problem is probably us, if we're really honest. We haven't yielded or submitted or we haven't abided or we haven't resided in God's goodness. And so the world is our enemy and we have a victim mentality. And, and that doesn't help any of the story of our beloved state becoming clearer and more profound in us. And it's powerful. The Lord your God in the midst of you, he's with us, he's present. And it's personal. He's mighty to save. What God has to do and wants to do in your life is a powerful thing. It's actually going to really stretch you to become the beloved. I mean, you're so used to living with an orphan mindset and an orphan attitude outside of the parameters of any accountability, actually to come home to the reality of God where there is but one Lord and one Christ Jesus who leads and guides us in triumphant procession. We will never enjoy the fullness of that if we're always resisting it. And trust me, one of the biggest issues in the church today is the resistors that we offer to God and justify by the cultural context in which we're in. Paul uses this phrase, for me to live is to abandon all that I've known. For me to live is to abandon all that I think I am. For me to live is Christ. In other words, my glorious, majestic obsession is to find my beloved reality in Christ and to live out of that new identity. And some of us are living out of our old identity when we have a new vocabulary and a new identity. We're new creatures in Christ. We are the beloved of God. So if anything comes out of my mouth or any action follows through in my life that is not about living in the fullness of that beloved state, then I need to be honest about it and say, God, I need more help than I thought. It's worse than I first imagined. And the wonderful thing about being community is you bring that reality and I bring my reality and there's no room for judgment in that because we're all on this glorious journey of the powerful new identity of becoming the beloved starting to permeate every facet of our hearts and lives. And that's why I don't like the us and them kind of vocabulary in the church. I believe there's just us. <laughs> Okay, we're just us and we're doing what we can in relationship to God and there are those who are nearer and those who are further, those who come to the building and those who have yet to come. 
So it's personal, he's present, it's powerful. And then it says he rejoices over you with singing. It's prophetic. You know, the, 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 the voice of the Lord never speaks about where you've been. God is present future in his communication. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet isn't about returning and revisiting your footsteps. It's about redirecting and reposturing your heart towards the future that God is opening up for you. And have you ever had a prophecy was, that was about the past? <laughs> That's an oxymoron. You can't have a prophecy that's about the past because prophecy is foretelling what God's going to do. So when God speaks to us in our new identity as creatures gloriously reconnected through Christ's sacrifice and resurrection and ascension to heaven, we are being spoken to, and listen carefully please for me, not about judgment. Because Christ has paid the price of your sin. Okay, so why does God, why do you think it's God, let's put it that way, that comes that way? God wants to speak in your now about where he's taking you. He wants to sing over you with love. It's an affection to bring you into fullness. It's a powerful song to hear. The song of the delight of the Father in the midst of your circumstances and your context. And it causes you to come alive. It causes you to be awakened. It causes your real truest self to be restored and renewed and revitalized. And all of that newness that Christ has provided through you for his death, his resurrection, ascension, becomes visible and tangible and it manifests in us. And we stop acting like we're outside of that covenant and we start abiding in it and staying as close to the reality of our truest new identity that we possibly can. And that takes a lot of discipline and a lot of intentionality. So for me, being the beloved of God is not a conference title. It's not even a good sermon title in the sense that actually there's so much to that that I am unable in this time frame to communicate. But I wanted to start the conversation because I would hate for any of us to think that it was about anything but that. Now, here's what happens, just in case we're questioning the outworking of this. If I don't live in the fullness of my beloved invitation, I will never impact the world in the fullness of my commission. Because that commission is attached to that invitation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and your strength. Okay, there's that beloved reality. And now out of that beloved reality, love your neighbor. How? As you have discovered your beloved reality truly is. Love for me and the beloved reality of being restored to relationship with God, his affection, his passion, his delight, his persistence. <laughs> In consistently moving on my heart and life 
until I am undone and all protests fall away and all pretense dies because there's no point for it is the most glorious, spectacular adventure that my little human Irish heart could ever go upon. To know that I am loved is the very essence of what I believe is relationship with God. And all of my life then becomes an adopting of that new reality and invitation and an aligning myself and ridding myself of anything that would hinder the fullness that that love can actually provide. Song of Songs, verse 6, verse 3, encapsulates this for us as, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. If you have an appetite to grow in the knowledge of your beloved reality, and maybe just are tired of trying to find that kind of security through alternative means, 